we're going to jump into a brand new series just for a couple of weeks. We've just finished this discipleship series, and we are now going to jump into something called the Hebrew mindset. So, Hebrew thought. Um, somebody read this this morning on the front of the program, and I said, well, what's that all about? Are we going to talk about Jewish things? And I said, yeah, we're going to talk about Jewish things. And the, and the concept of what are the people who are writing the scriptures, what are they thinking, what, are, what is their mindset when they're writing the things that they're writing, and I want to help us understand some very important boundaries for how we interpret scripture, because if you've been in church for a while, chances are that when you read your Bible, you are coming to it with a bunch of preconceived notions, some presuppositions about how you think it comes together. And you probably have not had a lot of background in all of the Hebrew thought and theology that goes into our New Testament. Um, I've put quite a few things. If you open up your program here, there are 10 things down the side. We're not going to get to all those today, but we're, I want you to have those in mind, and I want you to keep this so that you can fill it in and take some notes. What I'm going to do is basically throw up how we think about these, these topics, and then how Hebrews think about these topics, and then I want to give you some examples, okay, from scriptures that you can kind of have as handholds to understand what, what we're talking about here. What's really amazing to me is how frequently that we as Americans assume that throughout history, every civilization has essentially thought and aspired to the things that we think and aspire to. We approach history that way. You read your history book, you read your history book, or you read a biography of somebody who came 50 years ago, 100 years ago, 200 years ago, and you look at it and you go, okay, the lens through which you're looking at, you're viewing everything, is your Western 20th century, 21st century worldview. And that really handicaps us quite a bit. And so we think things like they desire the same things that we desire. They that they've lived the lifestyle that we live. And it's amazing how not in tune as Americans we are, even with the rest of the world currently, but especially with the world historically or the ancient world. So here's a shocking statement that I'm just going to blow your socks off, right? The Bible was not written to 21st century Americans. (gasps) It was not written originally to 21st century Americans. I don't know if most people really actually understand that. A lot of what I see on Facebook with people's doomsday predictions and end of times and this kind of stuff and this whole little series called Left Behind that when I came to this church, I will tell you plainly, I found three sets of that and I threw them in the recycling bin because they're garbage. They're absolute garbage. Okay? And they are not biblically based. They are not looking at the context, okay? Um, what we have, what we, how would I put it? What we have to know is that the Bible was written to an ancient Near Eastern culture of people who think and act radically different than us, radically different than us, okay? So what I want to wrestle with over the next couple of weeks is that the Bible was written by Jewish people to a Jewish audience in a Jewish culture, and not only in a Jewish culture, but in a Jewish culture that was fighting for its identity amongst a bunch of other cultures, okay? So I've put those headings in your notes because we're going to talk about this, and if you keep these notes, they'll be important to you for all future 
series that we do, ever. <laughs> like, this will be in the background. So if you're following along with whatever sermon series next summer that we're in, and, and you want to understand it better, and you're reading the, your Bible throughout the week, you might want to have these notes tucked away so that they can inform your own study a little bit. So I want to give you some examples of what I'm talking about. Here's just a real brief run-through. Genesis 19. If you've not been a Christian for a while, this one will come as a shocker to you, and you haven't read this story. Some of you have read this story. Lot is the name of a guy, right? And he harbors a couple of angels in his house who've come into the city, and he wants to protect them. And so in order to protect them, he says to this crowd outside that wants to get them, here, take my daughters instead. Yeah, okay. Genesis chapter 12, before that, if that wasn't shocking, uh, Abraham and his wife are traveling, and they come to Pharaoh, and what does he say? Here, have my wife. What? (laughs) Okay. Uh, Joshua chapter 7. God says, go attack these people. Uh, don't take anything for yourselves. This guy Achan takes some stuff for himself, and so he, he gets stoned to death right there. Okay, well, how come he couldn't just give it back? Why did they stone him? Okay, Matthew 8. Jesus tells a scribe, if, if we fast forward from the Old to the New Testament, a scribe comes up to Jesus and says, I want to follow you. I just need to go bury my, my dad. And Jesus says, let the dead bury their own dead. What? What is going on here, okay? Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5, they have some little dealings on the side, and it's not so much that they aren't allowed to do that, it's that they what? They lie about what they've done, and then God, in case you thought that was just, this was just an Old Testament thing where God like punishes and whatever you want to call it, and we need to examine what that means, unless you think it's just in the Old Testament that people get struck down dead by God, In the New Testament, all of a sudden, both of them fall down dead for lying. And you're like, what is going on here? What all these stories have in common? What they have in common is that we as as 21st century Christians look at it and go, what is going on? What is wrong with these people? Why is this in the Bible? Let me tell you, our kids that are over there and they're studying the Old Testament way more frequently, frequently than we are because we need that background to even understand what's going on in the New Testament, they are asking deep, deep questions of these stories. Like, why, why is this in the Bible? And then I run into Christians now who are like, oh, you can't let your kids read Harry Potter. And I'm like, have you read your Bible? Have you read your Bible? Are you kidding me? Oh my gosh. In all of these situations, we're kind of like, excuse me? Um, and the rest of our friends who don't believe, they're like, your Bible is just messed up. This is antiquated, violent, genocide-type weird stuff. And we're like, yeah, and we don't know what to do with it. All right. What you need to understand is that all of the deeply entrenched cultural norms in the ancient uh, Near Eastern culture are par for the course for them. They think differently their worldview is differently. They're looking at everything through a different set of lenses. The men and women in Jesus' day, when they heard the story about Abraham and his, giving his wife to Pharaoh, when they heard the story about Lot suggesting, take my daughters, they're like, yeah, okay. They don't even bat an eye. They don't even, they don't even think twice about it, okay? They wouldn't have even raised their eyebrow. But we, we can't wrap our minds around this because they are different than us. So the goal of these next few weeks is to unravel where they're coming from in their cultural understanding so that we can understand what is being said and why it's being said. 
okay? And yeah, some of it is weird, and some of it is really bizarre, okay? So I'm going to, we have these 10 things that we want to work through. We're going to get to some of them today, as many as I can in a little bit of time. Um, I think maybe we'll hit three or four of them, but um, the first one is the use of words. So let's put this first slide up here, the use of words. Uh, Greeks express truth using words, okay, definitions, and ideas. Now, when I say Greeks, I mean us. We are Greek-thinking, Western-world-type people, okay? We prefer prose, outlines, and bulleted or numbered lists. Some of us really prefer those bulleted or numbered lists. Some of you who don't use them, I don't know how you even get through life, okay? And some of you wives are going, yeah, I know, to your husband next to you, but... um, Hebrews, so Greeks express truth using words, definitions, and ideas. We prefer prose and outlines and bulleted or numbered lists. So that's the way we think. Hebrews express truth using word pictures and stories. And they prefer poetry and imagery and symbolism. So here's a good example. If you, each gospel has its different take on the life of Jesus. Mark's gospel it shows the progression of Jesus heading to the cross, okay? And he is the only gospel writer uh, who shows Jesus getting poured wine before he is put on the cross. And what is Mark doing there? Mark is writing to an audience, he is illustri- a specific audience, and he's illustrating that Jesus' progression to the cross is not a failure. His whole deal, how he sets it up when you read it, is that he is reenacting or mimicking uh, the coronation ceremony of a Roman emperor, the way he writes it. You're presented wine, there's things that are said, you are lifted up, you say certain words. What he's trying to communicate is that Jesus' death on the cross is not a defeat. He's being crowned king, and he is victorious. That is what he's trying to to, uh, show He's taking up his position. So that's very cool. The way Mark writes it is like in, in a, like this poet, poetic cadence, and he's telling, he's giving us a word picture, okay? And when we look at it in Western, uh, with Western view, we're like, okay, but Mark's version, he gets wine before he's on the cross, but in, in Matthew, Mark, in Luke, it's not there. So which one was it? And we care about the order of events, and we care about... Uh, what specific details were in each story and how come they don't line up, all right? For a Jewish person, for a Hebrew-thinking person, it doesn't matter at all. The timeline, how the events occur, whether it was before or after, it doesn't matter. What matters is, what is the story telling me? What is the story telling me, okay? The point that's being made is the issue. The point here is, I want to put this on the screen for you, we Greek-thinking Westerners we sometimes ask questions of the Bible that it was never written to answer. We ask these weird questions that would be weird for a Hebrew-minded person. To even, they'd be like, why are you asking that? That's not what, the, the, what it's about, okay? And we'll get into that a little bit more as we go on. It doesn't make, um, <coughs> excuse me, it doesn't make it, uh, the Bible a bad book. It doesn't, it doesn't make our questions bad either. It just means that we have to understand what questions the Bible is actually trying to answer, not the, not the questions that we come at it with. It has a whole other set of questions um, that, are, that, are, that it's uh, uh, proposing. So the second thing is numbers. And you, if you've been a Christian for a while, you go, okay, yeah, there's numbers here. 
that meet, have significant meaning. But we still do this thing in our Western thinking about numbers. For, for instance, as a Greek, how, how many is this? How many? Is it ever anything different? <laughs> no, I'm not trying to be tricky here. No, it's always five. It, it, it always means five, all right? So in a Greek, in a Greek culture, numbers are expressed in quantity. So I'm going to put that up there. Numbers express quantity for us, right? How many? That's all they are. It's arithmetic. It's, if you're British, it's maths, okay? Which I hear more and more frequently from Americans. I don't know why. It's, we, we just love to mimic other cultures that sound cool. Um, but I'll give you an example. Uh, in First Kings, uh, there's this tax that happens. King Solomon says, I'm going to tax all of you, all right? And the weight of the gold that Solomon received yearly was 666 talents. 666 talents, all right? And the first, so if you go to like, a perfect example of this is every week when I'm, when I'm researching for what I'm going to teach, okay? I go to this website called Bible Gateway. You should go there. It's very cool. You go there. They have commentaries. Um, I tell anybody who, uh, like Tim, I've told Tim, check out Bible Gateway when you're going to preach up here instead of me. You can look at the commentaries on there. You're going to get a lot of background work. Uh, it's so much that you're not even going to be able to handle it. <laughs> and you're going to have to like parse it and figure out what you want to use up here or whatever. One of the first things they do, because it's Greek Westerners who have this website, right? One of the first things they do is they go, how much is 666 talents? And then they break it down for you. Like, a talent is this many of this, and this many of this, and this many of this. And in our day's conversion, it's about this, right? So they do that as an example. And, of course, you're going to find out that 666 talents is about 25 tons. How much weight is a ton? 2,000 pounds. And we go, yes, I figured it out. 2,000 pounds is 25 tons times 2 to get the pounds. 50,000 pounds of gold in taxes. Yes, and now I know that. Hooray. Who cares, right? Who cares? Who cares? For a Hebrew, for a Hebrew, the point that the writer of Kings is trying to make is that this is an evil thing. 666. Solomon has done something very evil here. That's the weight. I don't think the weight, in other words, let me just tell you this, and if this shocks you, I don't think the weight was actually 666 talents. The writer is just like, this is evil. To which everybody in here who pays taxes goes, yes, it is. Taxes are evil, right? Yeah. Who cares how much it actually weighed? The point is that it is ungodly. That's what the writer is trying to say. I'll give you another example. Jesus feeds how many People, the fishes and the loaves. How many? That's right. But who, who says that? Pop quiz. Two of the Gospels say that. Another one says 4,000. Which one is it? And what if we got it wrong? Who got it, who got it right? Who got it wrong? Right? Type of thing, right? So here's the deal. One set of writers is writing to a primarily Hebrew audience. Another set of writers is writing to other audience of mixed Gentiles and Hebrews. And they're like, okay, how do we write this so that the people that we're writing to are going to get it, right? So the Hebrew, in the Hebrew mind, if it's five fishes and two loaves, right? In the Hebrew mind, five, all, five always reminds a good Hebrew of five what? The first 
five books of the Bible, the Torah. Okay, so he's, there's something symbolic happening here. There's five, five fishes, and two is always, for good Hebrew, it's always like the two tablets, not iPads. <laughs> okay, tablets, the two stones with the Ten Commandments. You've got the five and the two. This would have been reminding them of that, the five fishes and the two loaves, because you're always going like, is this really a miracle? I believe it was, but there's other, also something very symbolic going on here with the numbers. And how many are left over? There's 12 baskets full left over. But we're trying to go, okay, uh, well, Mark says 4,000. Matthew, Luke say 5,000. Which one is it? Was it a sermon on a mount or was it a sermon on a plane? In our Western minds, we were like, you've got to reconcile this. What is it? And the Hebrew writer is going, doesn't matter. <laughs> it doesn't matter. There's a story here that's trying to be told. There's a point behind the story, all right? Jesus goes over to the region of the Gesserines or the Gadarenes, depending on which gospel you are uh, reading. And you find there, there's this guy called the, the Gesserine demoniac, lots of demons in this. And he, it's the story of him casting out the demons and putting them in, in the pigs or the, the story of the guy chained up, right? It's in this area called the Decapolis, which was known by Hebrews, it, what they ca- called the Decapolis. They're like, there are, this is the, sev- the place where the seven pagan nations dwell here in the Decapolis. They called it the region of the Gesserines, right? In Hebrew, the word Gesserine means seven. It means seven. So he is in that region, and there's seven pagan nations, and he feeds them with seven loaves of bread in this version of the gospel, and there are seven baskets full of bread left over, right? The fish aren't even mentioned, by the way, in that, in that one. They're not even mentioned. Maybe the numbers have different meanings. As Westerners, we're like, what number is correct here? In one gospel's version, it's this. In another gospel's version, it's this. What number is correct? The, pro- the issue is, it's not that one is right and one is wrong. It just needs, you just need to know what they're thinking, what their thinking process is like, and what matters to them, and how they're going to write it down. Why do we need to know this? Why do you need to know this information? Because they are asking a different set of questions than we are. They're asking a different set of questions. Namely, what is God up to? What is he doing in our midst? And how are we going to follow him? And what are we going to do about it? Almost all the time. Uh, number three, we're going to talk about... Uh, oh, sorry. Let's go to the next slide. In Hebrew cultural, numbers represent qualities or symbols. If I forgot to say that. They... They represent qualities or symbols. The next one is the view of eternal life. So we've talked about this a lot in here over the last several years. Uh, And the Hebrew view of eternal life is much different than the Greek. The Greek one, eternal life is detached. It's not here. It's someplace else. It's kind of esoteric. It's detached from this one. It's someplace else. And so we have songs in our Greek culture, some of which we still sing today, but the easiest way is to go back to some of our hymns. You know, I can, you guys can finish this one for me. Some glad morning when this life is o'er. Because you can't fit over in there. It doesn't like fit for the, you know, when this life is o'er, I'll 
detached. I'm going to fly away someplace else, right? That's basically the Greek view of the Christian life. I say yes to Jesus, and then I hunker down, and I wait to fly away someday, you know? Uh, so, So the space between yes, Lord, and dead is me hunkering down, and I've just got to wait. I've got to wait for whatever God's eternal thing is for me, and it's out there somewhere. Uh, when you think about someplace else, like you do, because it's, it's the way you've been taught. This is the way the church has taught this for a long time. All right, In the Hebrew mind, eternity is in this world right now. Right now. And eternal life is living in alignment with God's agenda. Yeah, God has an agenda in this world to bring shalom and peace and healing and restoration and resurrection and make, for lack of a better word that we find in Revelation, to make all things new. Because he likes this place. He said it was good in the beginning. And he really didn't change his mind. Okay? Jesus says it this way. When the disciples ask him how to pray, there's that line right in the middle where it says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. On earth. Okay? So Jesus lines right up with that. I want to give you an example that I think is really critically important because we as Westerners have made eternal life about this evacuation plan to this other place. We have to figure out how to get evacuated and we have to hunker down and bear with everything until that time. So here's how we share the gospel with that worldview. Number one, you are bad. You're a broken person. You're a sinner, okay? Because Jesus then loves you so much, though, he died on the cross and took the punishment for you and conquered death so that you could get out of here someday. Where's the emphasis in that story? It's on you. Yeah. The emphasis is on us. We're sinners. We're bad. I'm the one who made Jesus had to die, and I'm the one who has to say yes to him, right? That's not entirely incorrect, right? The, The way a Jewish person who might accept might have accepted Jesus, might say this, would be something like God in the beginning created a really good place and good people and everything was good and peaceful and he had an agenda that he wanted to accomplish in and through us. But then what did we do? We rebelled. But even through that rebellion, he made a way for us to maintain peace and goodness And even though we rebelled against it, that's not the end of the story. God never gives up on us. And all he wants us to do is trust his good story. He never gives up on you. So that's the good news. And I want you to try and trust leaning into that for a little while and see what happens. Where's the emphasis in that story in the way we tell that? The emphasis is on God. The emphasis is on God. It's all about my God and what he's doing and how he's not giving up on me and how much he loves us. And here's the thing. 
you got these two ways of telling the story. They're the same story, but the way in which I tell it is really important because it invites me to share my God instead of sharing my miserable guilt. And I, by the way, I have this really firm conviction, and I hope all of you, if you don't have this, will come to this conviction as well. But here's my conviction. When I'm telling the gospel story to somebody, and that usually in our culture takes way longer than I want it to because I don't like to ram it down people's throat because that doesn't seem to work at all. It just kind of drives people away. Like It's just another symbolism of uh, uh, me telling my kid, hey, don't do this, and then they're going to go do exactly what I told them not to do. Hey, you need this. No, I don't. You know? Uh, and that's, if you ram the gospel down somebody's throat, it doesn't work. But my, my conviction is this. If it's good news, I do not need to tell you how bad you are. What is that? Why do Christians do that? I don't need to tell anybody how bad they are. Why? Why do we do that? Why would you ever do that? That's not good news. Besides the fact that you already know how bad you are. We all know how bad we are. We don't need somebody else to tell us all the time and say, that's the good news. No. You don't ever hear Jesus saying, if you don't accept me, where are you going to go tonight? That's not how he did it. That is not how he did it, okay? So, how you tell the story is really, really important. All right, let's move on. Life in community. Uh, In the Greek mind, our mind, life always focuses on the individual. This is, um, you can ask Barry about this. He used to be in the marketing field uh, all over the world and uh, doing campaigns for different uh, companies, um, some of which were like Mars Bar, uh, or Land Rover, and ask him about those fun times and all the places they took him to do commercials. My point in telling you that is this. Everything that you see on TV or in print or on your tablet is geared towards you as an individual. And it's been this way for a long time. So like Burger King used to say, I can have it my way, <laughs> you know. Every, just read it, just sit down to your TV and every time the commercials come on, pay particular attention to how they're marketing it to you and it's to you as an individual, okay? This is why, this is why I, I love playing games. I love board games, right? And, and it makes me come up against my own individual selfish nature when I play board games because I want to have fun. You teach your kids, this is all about having fun. In reality, you're saying, but you want to win. You want to win that game, right? Even if it's some like total chance, like Uno, where's the strategy? Maybe one of you has a really wicked awesome strategy, but you want to win, okay? If it's Scrabble or whatever, we're really into Ticket to Ride, Catan, because my son is almost 10, and he's like, I need something that engages my brain a little bit more than Uno. And I'm like, thank God, I'm so tired of memory and all, and, and shoots and ladders and that kind of thing. I'm like, no, shoots and ladders, you only have to go down once, because I want this game to end, Okay, and the game of life, don't get me started, okay? I don't know how many kids are going to put in my back seat. I'm like, no, you don't want this. You don't want all, <laughs> like 10 kids. Anyway, um, I digress. But I played this game a while back called Pandemic. Anybody ever play Pandemic? Right, yeah? So you play Pandemic, you lose if you don't work with others. You die. And I had to wrap my mind around this, like, how do you play this game? I, got, I don't win unless I work with others. Who invented this garbage? 
You know, this is not an American game or whatever, you know. And anyway, in the end, I really liked it. And I was like, okay, this is, this is actually quite refreshing from the standard, like, I want to just the will to dominate in whatever other game you're playing, right? So the Greek mind is always about the individual. Shocker here for you, the Hebrew mind, uh, in the Hebrew mind, life is always about the community, right? It's always about the community. You die if you don't put others first, and this is throughout your scriptures. This is something that happens all the time. Um, it's where the massive emphasis on hospitality for strangers comes from because it's not just me and my, my family. It's the village. It's the neighbors. It's the surrounding community. And if, I, if some stranger comes from the, the next community over and I don't welcome them into my home and show them hospitality and include them and treat them better than I treat my own kids, then next week we could be going to war. Like, things break down, okay? Something tells me we need a little bit more of this in this day and age, okay? So the Hebrew mindset starts with community first, like everyone else, and then it works its way inward, okay? So my obligation, if I'm a Hebrew, is to the communal benefit first. It doesn't matter what it costs me. Right? It doesn't matter what it costs me. I, I tell you what, just to throw this one in here, just because I'm the pastor and I can't, if we had this mentality when it came to tithing and giving, our wider community would think we were the best place on the universe. Because we'd have so much funding. I'm talking about all churches. We'd have so much funding. We would be funding things more than the Bill and Gates Foundation, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, if all churches did this. If we had this community-first mentality rather than me and mine first, and then you get whatever's left over. And meanwhile, God's going, okay, I gave it all for you, but all I'm asking for you is to put me first in your life. Okay. So here's another example. Like, somebody knocked on your door, and I've heard of this happening to, like, modern-day Christians where they go and they take, like, a mission trip or they're over in another country on vacation and something happens, and they have to meet a local and ask them for something, and they are almost always greeted with such hospitality in uh, Mediterranean cultures and in Asian cultures. When we, when we went to Japan, half my family lives in Japan, my nieces and nephews and my sister-in-law are Japanese, and uh, we went and met my sister-in-law's family, and it was like hospitality like you would not believe. Just everything we have is yours. Not just mikasa is sukasa, because we don't really mean that. We're trying to be hospitable, but they're like giving you everything, okay? Um, if someone knocked on your door and said, I'm hungry. I'm hungry. We'd be like, well, what's your favorite type of food? Right? So we, we, because I know a restaurant over here that you can go get that. We'd <laughs> be like, see ya. Yeah, I don't know who you are, you weirdo. Get out of my house, you know? It's so weird that what we did when I was a kid, we would have neighbors come over and be like, I need some oil, I need some cooking oil, I need some eggs, I need some milk, I ran out. Can I borrow yours, right? When's the last time that happened to you? I haven't heard that happening very much, very often anymore. The Hebrew worldview is all about others first, okay? All right, uh, I'm really starting to get hungry for chili. Um, anybody else? And the cornbread, especially with that ginger-infused, ginger-infused maple syrup. Okay, um, what is that? i got to try that. We'll see if we can figure out which one that is. Um, 
I'm going to skip a few of these. I'm going to skip, uh, we're going to handle these next week. View of sin, view of God, describing God. We're going to skip down to the 10th one. Learn, let, yeah, let's go, let's go there. Learning truth. Um, here's how I put it. In the Greek, in the Greek for us, Western thought, truth is static and it's unchanging, right? If something is true, then it's never going to change, right? It's always going to be true. It's, it's unchanging. It's this thing. There's this box out there that contains all truth, okay? Contains all truth. And we, we've either tied into that truth or not. We either know it or we don't, but truth is there, okay? In the Hebrew mind, truth is an ever-unfolding reality, all right? So I'll give you an example. Um, in recent history, we have all these theories about how particles and atoms and all this kind of stuff works, right? In recent history, scientists have come up with stuff called string theory. And you're like, what's that? And it's kind of like, I can't even explain it. Like these things why are woven through the fabric of reality. There's probably some of you that could explain this better than me. But when we think one thing is tied to, we think there's gravity and other forces that make things attract and that kind of stuff. Uh, pl- there's weak gravity and there's strong gravity and that kind of stuff. And then there's, there's uh, atoms and electrons and neutrons that make up matter. Uh, in recent history, scientists have discovered things called quarks and muons and <laughs> this kind of stuff, right? And so they'll have one that they're studying over here. And they'll have one that they're studying over here. And by here and there, I mean there's one over here in Switzerland, and then there's one over here in the United States. And these things are attracted by some kind of force, and they don't know what to call it. And when they affect this one over here, see, they were, they were together, and they pulled them apart by continents, and they affect one over here, and this one does the same thing. And they're like, what? What's going on? Right? So, and they're looking at this and going, okay... If we can figure this out, maybe we can fold space-time and what we do over here could make us appear over there, kind of like Star Trek or Star Wars or something like that. And you can warp or you can, what do they call it in Star Trek? Huh? Transport. Transport. Phase out and you can appear someplace else. Stuff like that. They're trying to figure this out. What we thought we knew was truth. It makes sense and it's right, but it's only the first part. And then there's a second part that we didn't know. And there's probably a third part that builds upon those other truths. And a Hebrew, would, a Hebrew-minded person would go, yeah, yep. God's way bigger than you could possibly even imagine. Much bigger than you can possibly even imagine. So for the Hebrew, it's not static. It's not contained. A Jewish rabbi today would suggest that Today, we have more truth than we had in the first century. That's how they view truth. Um, I'm going to ask the band to come up here as I finish this out, but an example of this would be if you look at the understanding of unfolding covenants in your scriptures. Um, The way that we teach the Bible as Westerners is that there's this old covenant story, right? The old covenant is in your Old Testament, And then you have this new covenant story in your New Testament, all right? And we call ourselves Old Testament Christians, right? No, we call ourselves New Testament Christians. 
And because of that, we don't really pay attention to the first two-thirds of our Bible. I'm a New Testament Christian, and I don't need to do any of that stuff over there, and none of that stuff really matters. I have to read it. I have to, because it's there. And I'm, it's just kind of there, and I'm obligated. So I better read that, you know. But we don't like it, and we don't know it, and we don't understand it, and we're like, why is Leviticus even there? Because I, it's like melatonin and Benadryl and uh, some other sleep aid all wrapped up in one, okay? Um, but it's only the new part that matters is what I'm getting at. And what I want to suggest is this. If you don't understand your Old Testament, then you cannot understand your New Testament. If you do not understand the Old Testament and the truths that are in there and the truths that are being built upon, then you will not understand your New Testament because you have to see it through God's progressive understanding of a covenant that is unfolding. And every time that God interacts with human beings, with mankind, he makes a covenant with them. I'll, I'll remind you of just a few. God finds Abraham and he makes a covenant with him, right? Yes? And then he finds Noah and he makes a covenant with him. Covenants are, there are terms to this, there are two parties to this, there are promises that are being made. I've got your back, you've got mine, right? So there's Abraham, and then there's Noah, and then there's who? Moses, Ten Commandments, covenants, okay? Right? And after that, who? They get a king, David, and there's a Davidic covenant, all right? There's all these covenants, there's lots of covenants that have been made, and each time a covenant is made, the old one before it is just thrown away, right? Wrong. Every time a new one is made, it's just a further unfolding of the last one. The last one's promises are not forgotten. They are still there. The one that comes after does not nullify the one that came before it. Each one becomes kind of a further unpacking of God's relationship with us. So are we under the Mosaic and Davidic covenant as followers of Jesus? Yes. Am I asking you to become a Jew? No, I'm not. Because there's a further unfolding. There's a further covenant, a new covenant that Jesus gives us. And Paul even takes that further. Paul's message in the book of Acts, the reason why he is having these clashes and arguments after he comes to faith in Jesus and the rest of the books that he writes, wherever he goes to a city, he's getting in a fight with the Jewish believers because... All of those covenants were made for the Jewish people. And they're like, you have to be a Jew for these promises to apply to you. And Paul comes along and he says, nope. Jesus says it's all wrapped up in him. And Jesus says his covenant is for Gentiles and Greeks. Thank goodness for all of us, unless you're Jewish. Um, they're for all of us. You don't have to be Jewish to be a Christian, is what Paul says. Jesus has made that clear. And that's the old debate. People are like, I have a lot of people come up to me. I'll say something about Sabbath. And somebody will be like, well, we don't need to do that because we're New Testament Christians. <laughs> like, I just want to cry. Really? You, you need to rest. It's in the covenant that Moses gave, that God gave to Moses, right? And it's important to set this day apart and to worship God on this day. Jesus himself honored the Sabbath. So, 
we have this new covenant, an unfolding reality of God's truth that wraps up all those other ones. We're coming to this time of communion where I'm going to invite you up here. And um, we have a station in the middle and we have stations on the side. And for those of you who are gluten-free, those options are up here. Um, is Jesus gluten-free? It's a both and. <laughs> yeah. Um, this is his table. And if you believe in him, we invite you to come up here and partake. What, the way we do that is you, you come up and you take the bread and you dip it in the wine and you go back to your seat uh, and then uh, you wait for me and we'll pray and then I'll ask us to take it all together as one body when we get to that point. But this is a visual reminder. I have the, the Old Testament Christians, when, they say, when I say stuff like, the, the New Testament Christians, when I say stuff like we are part, all those Old Testament covenants are things that pertain to us they're like, well, then how come we aren't doing sacrifices? Well, it's been taken care of with a new covenant. The covenant in Jesus' blood and body right here. It's one of the reasons we take it every week here. Now, if you're a Christian and you've been around to other churches, you do not have to take communion every week. But we do it every week when we meet because we don't want to forget. We never ever want to forget the sacrifice that Jesus made. This new covenant that he made for us through his blood. And we'll talk about this more next week, but I like to end with some questions each week for you, some that kind of give you some uh, implications to think about. So as we have this time of communion, I'm going to ask the band to play, and you come when you're ready, but here's the question. Given what we've just learned today, have you imposed your 21st century lens, your 21st century ideas, your presuppositions? Have you imposed your worldview on the biblical text? If you have, what kind of baggage has that left you? If you have, what kind of baggage have you given to others because of that? I want you to think about that because this is the unfolding reality of God's truth in his new covenant that we are saved, that he loves us, that he will never, ever stop running after us and pursuing us. He will not give up on you. And this time and this meal is for us to remember that. So as we enter into this prayer meditation, maybe ask him to help you realize that more fully, to know and understand it deeply so that you can understand where you need to go next and ask him, what are you saying to me? What am I going to do about it? Come when you're ready.